Hello and welcome to the Gridiron Show, cracking show coming up for you today as we look at the good, the bad and the ugly from the past week in the NFL. We'll be joined by Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick as we're seeing a lot of changes across the NFL. It turns out that the idea that the COVID-19 season was going to be one where you were going to be able to bury the faults of your team and actually be able to hide behind the excuses is completely false as we see more head coaches fired in the regular season than any year in recent memory. As always, delighted to be joined by Liam Blackburn, uh, the editor of Gridiron Magazine. Liam, how are we doing, sir? Good morning. Yes, very well, mate. Yourself? Like you said, good morning on a podcast on which people <laughs> could listen to it at Long any that. time of day. But I do appreciate it. Uh, Simon Clancy, how are you? Very well. It's lockdown haircut day, so I am extremely excited. I mean, yours already looks pretty on point, I have to say. Liam I... is looking a little shaggier than I'm used to. Yeah, it's, but... it's hopefully for me as well today. Speaking of ugly, and for those who are watching this on the YouTube version, they will have noticed that my video here. isn't on yet. It is the 2nd of December. Oh, Matt Sherry, that's an unfair bit of hate. But we've got the win this week, and so the oh ugly Christmas God. jumper is on. For God's sake. Christ, all right. If you can't, if you're listening to the podcast, I'd just be thankful that you're listening to the podcast. I don't know what's more affecting to the eyes, the jumper or the background, and the fact they meld into this kind of technicolour... <laughs> Yeah, we moved into this house during lockdown, and uh, I don't know why I film in front of this wall, which is the only piece of decor in this house we've moved into that I absolutely hate, because that's just a, just a bit of wallpaper. It's not actually a wood effect. That's not real wood behind me. I know you thought I was in like a log cabin or something, and it's absolutely awful. It's coming down in January after we've got past Christmas, trust me. Anyway, no one cares about that. People care about the NFL, so let's crack on and talk about last week and looking forward and uh, we'll start off with the good and I want to start off with this the new generation or the up-and-coming generation of wide receivers because we saw some pretty stunning performances from maybe guys we've got used to seeing pretty stunning performances from but second year third year guys absolutely tearing up the league Simon and three in particular really and you look at Debo Samuel AJ Brown and um, and DK Metcalf I suppose you throw it into the context of that draft last year and you look at some of the other players that were drafted Paris Campbell Hollywood Brown who we talked about last week is in that veering towards bus and territory Keel Harry Keel Harry obviously has really struggled I think what's interesting is it is how these three and especially Brown and Metcalf have just become elite NFL receivers. And you look at the, you look at the damage DK Metcalf did to Darius Slay at the weekend, one of the, you know, top 10 cornerbacks in the NFL. I think he had 10 catches for 177 yards. Slay was absolutely bossed all over the field, lost 50-50s contested catches. And what I love that what DK does is he's so feisty, so nasty. He just gets in people's heads right from the get-go. It's one thing that you're lined up against him. He's big, he's physical, you know, he's going to win at the catch point. He's going to go up and get the ball. He'll out jump you, he'll out muscle you, but he's also going to get in your head right from the get-go. He's going to be pushing you. He's going to be shoving you. There's going to be a fight. I mean, I, I think the last three games I've seen DK Metcalf play, he's got into fights with cornerbacks, which is kind of what you want. The team rally behind him. AJ Brown is not that kind of guy in terms of the fighting, but by God, he's physical. And, you know, the Titans, when Arthur Smith feeds AJ Brown early in a game, you know that he's primed for a massive showdown. And I think I'm going to talk about the 49ers later on, but Samuel's 11 catches for what, what was it? 11 for yeah, 133 yards. In this run-in that the 49ers have got, if they can keep him healthy and if he can if he can show up like that week after week, they've got a real chance of making a, a, an NFC wild card. But these three are indicative of the way that the receiving situation is going. And, and also going back to look at Old Miss, where AJ Brown and DK Metcalf played with each other. I mean, that's terrifying. Uh, in the SEC, and yet were not a very good team. I mean, what on earth were they doing offensively? <laughs> not, I mean, you know, to not get into the national championship playoff, or in terms of recruiting, who whoever the receiver recruiter is needs to be promoted immediately. Everybody else fired. Damning indictment of old Miss recruiting. <laughs> so, it's a great point you made about DK Metcalf because I remember the the week. I think it was week three when they played the Patriots and. Everyone was talking about how is he going to handle Stephon Gilmore because he's so physical and he just seemed to rise to that challenge completely. And obviously there were quotes before the game against the Eagles from Jim Swartz basically saying, you're not Calvin Johnson, Megatron yet. And that, he kind of took that personally and put the chip on his shoulder. And I think you saw in the first quarter, you know, they they kept trying to rough him up. There was a um, unnecessary roughness penalty on um, Malik Jackson, I think it was, down near the red zone. And he just seems to thrive off that sort of stuff. And 
I'll, I'll leave you with an open goal here, Willie, because I know you want to talk a little bit about Debo Samuel. Um, but of all the of all the 49ers injuries this year, you know that that one's kind of flown under the radar. He, he came back earlier than expected and probably wasn't quite right when he first came back. But you know, you go back to that Super Bowl and correct me if I'm wrong, Willie, but he was probably their best offensive player in that Super Bowl and such a key part of that offense in terms of the way Shanahan wants to run the scheme and, and getting the ball in his hands. Yeah, and I think it's indicative of what they've done with that wide receiver room in general, what you saw from Manny Sanders last year as well, the physicality, the willingness to block downfield, um, the work they've done with Wes Welk has been absolutely phenomenal and obviously with Shanahan, et cetera, as well. And and that's Samuel is as key to the offense as uh, George Kittle at times. Like he is that level of, of player to them and it's it showed on, on Sunday and it will show in the run game as much as it will in the passing game as well. And that's the thing, he talks about physicality. All three of those guys... Different sizes and shapes, obviously, but all of them incredibly physical when it comes to that. And like the other big wide receiver performance we saw this weekend, obviously, was 209 yards in the first 14 minutes from Tyreek Hill, who is a guy who is you know, smaller than, than Liam, but is just like his physicality that, at the catch point is ridiculous. Will's never seen me play defensive back. I would definitely have shut him down completely. In that oh shut him God. down completely. Definitely. 100%. We should we, mention uh, Justin Jefferson as well, because he had yeah. two touchdowns and, oh, you know, stepped up without Adam Thielen. And, and just like, just on the Eagles, obviously they took Jason Rager a pick before him. The previous year they took Artega Whiteside before DK Metcalf. Can you imagine how much different that offense would look with Metcalf and Justin Jefferson as the wide receiver option. Jefferson has to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. I mean, I know that Justin Herbert's been great and quarterbacks, you know, historically tend to win those awards. But Jefferson, you look at his yards per catch as well. I think, certainly I didn't check it this week, but last week when he was against the Bears, I think it was something like 18.3 yards per catch. I mean, it's phenomenal for a rookie receiver to do what he's doing. And, you know, you look at the Keenan Allen's, the Devontae Adams is those kind of guys who are the elite route runners, but who don't run 4-4s. Four you know, these are 4-5 guys. Jefferson was a late 4-4, four four, early 4-5 four guy, but an outstanding route runner coming out of LSU. And I just think proves time and time and time again. You look at the struggles that Henry Ruggs is having, for example, you know, an absolute blazer, but isn't a particularly refined route runner. And he's, you know, he's struggling, whereas Jefferson is absolutely flying because he understands the nuance of how to run an NFL route. And I think that's so important. We've talked a lot about AJ Brown there already, but the Titans' dominance in general makes our list as well an absolute destruction of the Indianapolis Colts. And okay, you have to say that they hugely missed the the pieces that they missed on the defensive line, uh, which just allowed them to absolutely run all over them with Derrick Henry. But because the Titans' defense hadn't lived up to hopes and expectations this year, they just had zero pass rush, and the defensive backfield was injured horrifically throughout the first eight, nine weeks. I, I just never really necessarily bought them as not a playoff contender, but as a contender once they got to the playoffs, if you know what I mean. I think that this was a bit of a statement win this weekend, Liam. Yeah, and I mean, the thing that's kind of standard out to me is it's very similar to last year in the way that Henry's kind of like beginning to completely take over. Now, if you look at last year when he, he led the league in rushing, he only had one 100-yard game before week 10. As the season got older and, you know, players get injured, people are more tired. He just seems to, his conditioning level is astonishing. He just seems to go up more gears the later into the season it gets. And that's now eight straight road games of 100 uh, rushing yards, I think, which is the second most of all time behind Barry Sanders. He had 124 yards after contact in this game, which is in itself two more, only two other running backs had more yards, rushing yards all week. Um, and as you say, there's, there's been a, a short, a small defensive improvement. They're not being shredded like they were. And if, if they can control the clock with Henry and just keep him going, then all the signs are looking good for them. I think the point that Liam makes about him getting better is is an absolutely apposite one. I think he averages 88.9 yards per carry uh, per game in December. <laughs> per carry would be phenomenal. <laughs> per game. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is up from uh, his second best month, which is November, where he averages 70 yards per game. You know, so he's averaging an extra 18 yards per game as the season goes on with the wear and tear and the hits that he takes on that 252-pound body. That is astonishing. But I think the Titans are just playing superb complementary football. You know, they're getting absolutely everything they can out of Ryan Tannehill. And if I think if they can get Corey Davis going, you know, at a week-in, week-out consistency level, you know, down the stretch and into the playoffs, they could beat anybody on any given day. The question is whether that defense could hold up, for example, against the Chiefs in Arrowhead. Uh, and I'm not sold that it could, but I think you know you saw you saw what they've done to the Colts, you saw what they did with Pittsburgh. You know they're a missed field goal from from Stephen Goskowski away from going to overtime in that game. 
they are legitimate challengers. And whilst they are flawed, there are lots of teams in this league this season that are flawed. And, you know, I think if they can cover up as many of their flaws as possible and they've got a great coach, they could go all the way. And just just a point on the coach, actually. I, I think the sort of thing that he did last week where he got in the face of John Harbour and, and was giving him shit on the side, you know, that's the sort of thing that can really galvanise an already galvanised team. Do you know what I mean? The, the, the rallying round of a coach at this point in the season is hugely important. And to see your coach go over there and just give it to a rival head coach, I thought was a was an outstanding move and it's the sort of thing that a team is going to love. Uh, we're talking of uh, <laughs> things that are... I was trying to think of the best way to link this because you said something during that sentence about something being awful, but let's just talk about the NFC East, which suddenly isn't awful, which is suddenly incredibly compelling. Washington have won three of their last five games and the two that they've lost have both been by three points. New York have suddenly turned up and started playing. They're both on four wins now. Uh, Daniel Jones' injury could prove a problem, but the Giants have just won three straight having lost to the Buccaneers by two points and the Eagles by one point in the two games prior to that. You know, suddenly we were saying that there's not going to be a team that's going to get past five wins in this division. And okay, it still might be won by a by a six and ten or a seven and nine team, but two teams are showing up. It's getting exciting down the stretch and uh yeah, just shows football teams can actually be competitive no matter how bad we think they are, except for the Jets. You say it's the worst league, but actually it feels like it's the it's the best in a way because it is the most competitive, it's the most exciting. And I think what Liam said last week is absolutely prescient, which is that the Eagles, who at this point last week were leading the division, are now almost certainly going to finish last. I mean, their coaching, their play is just astonishingly bad. The value of good coaching is really coming home to roost in this division because, you know, you look at the two teams now that are pressing forwards as we as we hit the home stretch which is the Ron Rivera coach Washington football team and the Joe Judge coach New York Giants versus the very poorly coached Mike McCarthy Dallas Cowboys and the equally poorly coached Doug Peterson Philadelphia Eagles and and the last week of the season is Giants Cowboys Philadelphia against the Washington football team and you just know that that division will be solved will be sorted on that final, they'll um, they'll, they'll put both those games in the nine pm window. They have them on at the same time, and then Sky will have no idea which game to pick from the exactly. two, and it'll be hilarious. Everybody will be watching Red Zone anyway, so it's not too short. Gale, I said uh, it. Yeah, and we all thought it. I think Liam, that brings us quite nicely on to our from good to our bad, because on the point of the Eagles, terrible coaching. Game management, or should I say game mismanagement, and not just from bad head coaches this weekend like Cliff Kingsbury and Doug Peterson, but Andy Reid as well. I just, this feels like something about once every four or five weeks we come back round to it and rant about it and rave about it, but all the talk of analytics and when you should go from fourth down and all of that stuff, how are these people getting game management so wrong still week in, week out? There's a few other ones as well, <laughs> The Anthony Lynn one where the Chargers uh, were in a hurry up right at the end of the game where they needed two scores right on the goal line and then ran a running play, which was just, I mean, just twice. summed up. Yeah. He did it twice. So no timeouts. Summed up his entire sort of coaching. And then we mentioned the Dallas game, the, the fourth down play where they did the sort of end around to Cedric Wilson, I think it was. And then, to be fair, had they built in a passing option on that play, they, they would have been able to complete it. But that was like... Hunter was wide open. Played on that yeah. play. And, and these are decisions that cost them, you know, they were still, they were still in that game against Washington. And after that, I think Washington scored either on the next play or the play after. And, and, and that was over. As you mentioned there with, with Doug Peterson, you've got to, you've got to know the situation. You've got to know that you've got Carson Wentz as your quarterback. Andy Reid has to know he has Patrick Mahomes as quarterback. You can't have a one size fits all mentality. And it's, it seems to be the same culprits every week as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Doug Peterson, they were down two scores, i.e. one field goal and a touchdown with a, with a conversion. There was eight and a half minutes to go and they had a chip, they were in chip shot field goal range and they went for it on fourth and four and didn't make it. And it, you just think, what on earth, Postman, what on earth are you doing? Just astonishingly bad coaching, astonishingly bad coaching. And if you're one of those veterans like Fletcher Cox or Brandon Graham, you almost want to be going up to Peace and saying, what, what, you've just literally just cost us the game there. And the reason I mentioned it's not just bad coaches is I still don't understand how Andy Reid on fourth and half a foot from the goal line goes for a chip shot field goal in a game where the Ducks very nearly came back. Like they really shouldn't have done. It's a game that you should have dominated, but I know that hindsight is twenty twenty on these things, but 
saying hindsight is 2020 when we're all watching those plays before they happen and screaming at the TV, what are you doing? Or like you say, if you're on the sideline, you've just got to have your head in your hands going, what is this? What on earth are you thinking? So uh, it's just a little rant. I had to get it out of my system. Also talking about bad and another one that's come up quite a few times this year, the Bears quarterback situation, Monday night football, Bears Packers. I mean, 16 points ended up looking respectable because of a couple of garbage time scores, but I think you summed it up pretty perfectly, Simon. If there's one thing to take away from that game, it's that the Bears really haven't got an option at quarterback. Yeah, it was the definitive moment, I think, in terms of knowing. You know, he'd been out. Matt Nagy talked about it was the best week of practice he'd ever had because God knows I'd hate to have seen one of his worst weeks if that was the, the reaction from a best week of practice. And he laid an egg. You know, he just didn't play very well. They probably wasted one of David Montgomery's best games. Um, and it's not like they're not without talent, both at tight end and at receiver with Alan Robinson, Darnell Mooney. But Trubisky proved that he is not definitively is not the guy. And I think it will cost Matt Nagy his job. I'm certain it will cost Ryan Pace his job. And that's fine. If you're, you know, if you're a Bears fan, then you know that you are now officially moving on. Because Nick Foles, as, as much as we all like Nick Foles, he also isn't the guy but that was a statement performance from from Mitch Trubisky and a bad statement you spend that bye week obviously sort of building a game plan around Trubisky which is different with you know play action screens all this sort of stuff and then you're 24 points down midway through the second quarter and it's like we can't do any of that stuff you know Montgomery ripped off that huge run early on and they were like maybe we can establish a run get it going didn't happen and and this was finally the week where the defense sort of didn't keep them in a game for for a while. You know, Green Bay started five for five on third down. The next third down, they didn't complete. They went for it on fourth down and completed it. And it was just, yeah, they just got absolutely manhandled. And as you, as you said, Simon, this is a definitive answer. If anyone thought that Mitch Trubisky was the answer beyond this season, then yeah, you got you got your answer. I know the numbers don't look too bad by the end, but that's just because of the, the garbage time stuff they got, as Will mentioned. I heard an interesting comparison elsewhere from somebody who I think is a decent football mind, but saying that, look, Everyone had written off Ryan Tannehill and said there was no chance that he was going to be the answer for any franchise. And I don't think any of us expected him quite to explode in the way he has in Tennessee. And maybe it's been the perfect situation, apart from you, Simon, of course. But the the kind of the point they were making was that Ryan Tannehill came third in that draft after two quarterbacks who were expected to go in front of him and nobody kind of batted an eyelid then when he wasn't the guy. The fact that Trubisky has to constantly hear about the fact that the Bears didn't take Deshaun Watson, didn't take Patrick Mahomes. It feels like he's getting buried in a way that maybe we wouldn't bury a guy who was taken later in the first round. Is that fair? There is something to that, but there's also just, you know, his performances just put them on paper or watch the film and it's a stark realisation that he just isn't an NFL quarterback. And I think it's also an indictment of starts in college um, which is an important statistic. You know, I think he only had 13 starts at North Carolina, only started for one season. Uh, and you look at some of those quarterbacks who only played minimal amounts of games, Mark Sanchez being another one at USC. I think quarterback starts in college are really important. And in terms of stats, I also think quarterback wins is one of the worst statistics in, in, in football. You know, Mitch Trubisky was 3-0 and coming into that game in Green Bay. So if quarterback wins are important, they shouldn't be any anymore because um, that blew up in, in everybody's face at the weekend. So if you're one of those stats geeks who thinks that quarterback wins is something that should be um, something that should be nurtured and loved, well, I've got a news for you and it's not good. I guess I'd counter that, Will, by saying, do we think he'd have had the opportunities he's had had he not been picked so high? And he probably wouldn't have been the starter going into this season. Would Would he have even had another chance this year? I'm not so sure. Also yeah. trading up for him as well was, mm-hmm. you know... Yeah. You know, you're giving up picks to go and get this guy too. It does feel like Pace and uh, and Nagy are pretty much saying, we know our career rests on this guy, so let's hit and hope. And it's it's not worked out for them. Two guys who very much will likely find themselves out of a job at the end of this year. And there's going to be a lot of head coaching vacancies to fill this season. It feels like we now have the Detroit Lions who didn't tell us until Saturday they fired Matt Patricia, but he was definitely fired on Thanksgiving, leaving that building. Just told, don't worry about coming in tomorrow, mate. The Falcons, the Texans, we will have the Jacksonville Jaguars because as much as they're keeping Marone around and they've got rid of Dave Caldwell, I think we'll have the Bears as well. There's arguments that places like Cincinnati might move on from Zach Taylor, although he might be saved by the Joe Burrow Denver, injury, to be honest. Denver. Big Fangio's a lot of conversation around that. The Jets J-E-T-S. definitely is <laughs> that's going to be up. It's 
astonishing Gase hasn't gone already, even though there's a lot of conspiracy theory about keeping him there to get Trevor Lawrence. So state of franchises in the NFL, which of those jobs actually appeals to a up and coming head coach, a hot candidate like an Eric Bieniemy, or a Joe Brady or one of these guys that's going to get touted left, right and center, Simon? I think Atlanta is a decent shout. Good owner. An owner who doesn't jump to the, you know decisions, great stadium, decent fan base, decent amount of players. That you know, you know, look what the Falcons did to the Raiders at the weekend, winning forty three six. You know, there are good players on that team. You have a decision to make, obviously, around Matt Ryan. I think the Jets is an interesting one. You know, you're going to get Trevor Lawrence, and Joe Douglas doesn't look like a complete mug. Liam and I were talking at the weekend whilst the Miami Jets game was going on about Mims, uh, Denzel Mims, the receiver, and you know Trevor Lawrence is going to enjoy throwing to him. So for me, that they they are two very interesting jobs. I think Jacksonville is an interesting job. But again, Shad Khan is probably going to be a bit a little bit like Arthur Bank in terms of you know he's not going to you, you, you know you look at Dave Caldwell's record. He lost 12, 13, 11, 13, 6, 11, 10, and eleven games in eight seasons, and yet he still managed to retain his job. You know, whether you're going to get Justin Fields, there's clearly talent on that offensive side of the ball. James Robinson, LaVisca Chenault, DJ Shark. Defensively, you've still got Miles Jack. There's still young players coming through. Josh Allen, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, for me, those are three interesting positions. And then Detroit, I just blow Detroit up completely. And that means trading Matthew Stafford. And there will be teams out there that will be interested in taking a Matthew Stafford. You look at his cap number next year, it's 34.9 million. Why are you waving at me, Willie? Oh, uh, because I know a team that would probably take Matthew Stafford. Oh, yes, the 49ers are going to get to them, yeah. <laughs> His dead cap here is uh, 24 million. Um, he's due a 10 million roster bonus on the fifth day of the 2021 league year. But they've not won a division title in his 12 years. They've not won a playoff game or even hosted a playoff game. And this will be the fourth straight season that they're they're going to finish last in, in their division. The Ravens did it in 2007 after going 13-3 and with our own Brian Billick. What have you got to lose by getting rid of Matthew Stafford? You've got an awful, awful lot to gain because you can draft another quarterback and you'll probably get a first-round pick from somebody like the San Francisco 49ers who will take happily take Matthew Stafford off off their hands. I think the, the Lions' job, as you said, the, the one thing that stands out to me is they don't really have any good young players that you can kind of build around for the future. It, it does yeah. seem like it needs a massive reboot. You know, Akuda struggled a lot this year, as, as a lot of young rookie cornerbacks have done, but... Where's the player where you're saying that's the guy we're going to build around for the next five years? As, as Simon says, it just needs a complete rebuild. And I know that people aren't high on the Texans as a, as a potential opening because they don't have the draft picks. We don't really know what's going on with Jack Easterby's kind of presence there still. And there are an awful lot of holes there. But every week I watch the Sean Watson, I just think you are set at the most important position there. If you can just get a few pieces around him, then that's ready to take off. I think my key with the ones that Simon mentioned first Jacksonville, although it's obviously not a sexy pick from franchise perspective, but the Jets, I think they're all, and the Falcons are all going to be places that will have an element of patience with you when you come in. You're going to have three, four years. And I think that's the way if you're going to bring in a new head coach and GM in similarly to how San Francisco did and similarly to how quite a few franchises. I mean, Matt Rule is a prime example who's been able to go in, blow it up and actually have a pretty competitive and successful first year, which no one necessarily expected. Gruden and Mayock, given those long contracts, like those are the ones that you kind of want. I don't think you're necessarily getting that in Houston. I think they might want success from day one, particularly if the likes of JJ Watt are still there, if you don't end up moving them on, which you probably should try and do where you've got no picks. Where are these candidates? Who are these candidates? You know, these hot coaches. We talk about Eric Bayanami, Robert Saller, obviously, is one of them, Matt Eberflus. But look at what the Carolina Panthers did with Matt Rule. It's that thinking outside the box. And you look at somebody like a Joe Brady, for example, but you also go to the collegiate ranks and you look at a couple of coaches like Matt Campbell at Iowa State and Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern. You know, I'm looking for teams and for GMs who are who are going to look at that kind of thing rather than the old white retread that Matt Sherry loves so much. <laughs> but I mean, there are guys like, uh, like Brian Dayball who had what one head coaching interview last year. Yeah. I bet he's interviewed for almost every job, if not every job this year. It seems to happen every season that there's a guy or two who teams take a little look at and then don't pull the trigger on. And then they end up becoming a really hot candidate the following season. And you just think about times where it's obviously not going to land every time, but you think about times where teams have taken a risk on a guy a little early, like, Mike Tomlin, for example, who was never going to be the Steelers head coach and got given a nudge towards the Roonies and they ended up loving him and bringing him in and look at the success he's had there. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think that don't go into it with the preconceptions. And actually, that's why I think we're seeing more and more coaches fired early, like in Carolina. 
because they had more time they felt to vet people. I don't understand why you can't do that while you're head coach in the building. Surely Adam Gase knows that you're vetting people for his job right now, but who knows? Maybe he doesn't know. It's Adam Gase. (laughs) Okay, I won't make those assumptions. From the good to the bad to the ugly, a couple of obvious ones this week, but start off with Saints-Broncos, which was an ugly game of football as much as it was an interesting game of football. Just completely open question. How do you feel about the NFL's handling about the Broncos situation, Simon? I think it was absolutely fine. I think it's hard to blame the NFL for being unwilling to to make any changes to the schedule, given how stringent they've been about adhering to the rules, which the Broncos clearly broke. The Baltimore situation is slightly different because it happened with a strength and conditioning coach and it was clear that the that COVID was rife amongst their team and, and forced them to move. I mean, it was unsafe to play with 20-plus players missing, whereas the Broncos situation was very clear. The quarterbacks were in on an off day looking at film. They weren't socially distancing. They weren't wearing their masks, as definitively the rules stated. And I think that the, the NFL was right to do what it did. You know, it made a bit of a mockery of the game and I felt extremely sorry for Kendall Hinnon having to come in and and do what happened. I also thought the game plan was pretty bad in terms of the way that they just, there were ways and means of moving the ball without having Kendall Hinton drop back to throw 13 times necessarily, you know, a few jet motions, a few sort of quick screens, those sorts of things, which they didn't really sort of do, uh, which I thought was very odd. Although this, I think is the best statistic I might've seen all season that Kendall Hinton has more recently thrown a touchdown pass for Wake Forest in 2017 than Taysom Hill has, which he last did for BYU in 2016, which I think is the arguably the greatest stat of the season, given the situation uh, that we find ourselves in. I was, but no, I have, I have no sympathy whatsoever for the Broncos or for their fans. I thought, you know, the rules are the rules and they clearly broke them. The one kind of team I do have a bit of sympathy for here is, is Pittsburgh, because, you know, they got screwed over earlier in the year with the, the Tennessee situation and had to take their bye I think it was week three or week four because the Tennessee game was postponed. They've now got this this game against Baltimore. Everything's kind of messed up the rest of their season, and they've adhered to the rules all along. It's nothing. It's not their fault, and they're kind of being punished for it as a result. The Ravens are going to get a couple of players that they wouldn't have had had this game been taken place on Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, or whatever other days have been proposed since the mass delays. And the thing about the NFL is people, you know, people criticizing them, but. The last thing they wanted was a primetime Thanksgiving game to be postponed. The last time, the last thing they wanted was a practice squad wide receiver going out there and, a, and putting on that product on the field. And again, no criticism for him because it's such a difficult situation. He didn't receive any any reps or whatever, but it's affecting the NFL's products massively. And I think that the one the teams I feel sorry for are the teams who are indirectly affected by this, such as the Steelers. Steelers have to play f- twice in four ga- four days, yeah. don't they? That is ludicrous. There'll be a great thirty for thirty on Kendall Hilton at some point. Uh, you've got to respect the guy for stepping in and doing it. I mean, the fact that he is the first quarterback in NFL history to have more interceptions and completions in a game just feels horrible. It just feels harsh on him because, like you say, the situation he was put in was just completely. But you've impossible. got. Like somebody like Jerry Judy with all that speed. Why is he not taking a shotgun snap and literally just tossing it to Judy on a on a jet sweep? Counts as a completion. Just mm-hmm. get a bit of confidence up. Yeah. A couple of screen passes. I mean, it's, this is not difficult, Pat Shermer. Why are you? He was looking, giving him sort of three or four seconds in the pocket, making multiple read throws. It was just like, come on. What we're saying is Simon Clancy could have schemed up something better. I could have schemed up there. I mean, you've got an athletic offensive line. <laughs> right, let's run a few screens. I mean, come on. Hope that I wasn't playing at cornerback, mate, batting all these. <laughs> oh my god! Here we go again. <laughs> uh, superb but I echo all the sentiments about the Broncos I've heard so much from Broncos fans who claim that they've been hard done by to be honest you were playing a Saints defense that had conceded one touchdown in the last three weeks against much better quarterbacks than Drew Locke except the fact that you've got a better excuse for the loss than you would have had had you had your starting quarterback in there because you would have lost it anyway Jared Goff who I have heard from sections and I don't want to agree with it because I want to claim that it was a brilliant 49ers win and a wonderfully schemed game, but he is essentially getting their loss against San Francisco put squarely on his shoulders by a lot of people. Is that fair? No, I don't think so. It was. Yeah, but we just, we go through these things with, I mean, I know you and Matt had a a big discussion about this on, on WhatsApp and we sort of go through these things. With, with Goff seemingly every sort of few weeks. I can't believe they sort of, the, the Rams kind of allowed you to stick around in that game. You know, they should have put it to bed much earlier on. Goff has these performances every few weeks, particularly I find against division opponents that know him really well and kind of know how to scheme against him. So, I mean, he was bad, but I, I don't think he was solely responsible for the defeat, let's put it that way. 
I think they're four and zero, zero and four. Sorry, in the last four games against Carl Shanahan, you know that that's a situation yeah. that that Sean McVay has to sort out as much as Jared Goff, you know. And also, people talk about oh, he's a system quarterback. Every quarterback is a system quarterback. You know, you're looking at Tom Brady and the situation in Tampa. He does not fit that system. Therefore, Tom Brady, the ultimate winning quarterback, is a system quarterback. You know, Patrick Mahomes will probably be great in a lot of systems, but the system that he's currently in is the one that suits his skills best. Jared Goff is a Sean McVay, quick read, short decision-making time, pocket passer. That's what he is. You know, you're not going to put him in a run-and-shoot offense because that wouldn't suit his skill set. You know, he would not fit in Bruce Arians' offense, but he does fit in Sean McVay's, but you have to take some of the rough with the smooth. He is inconsistent at times. But, you know, you go back to the week before against Tampa, and I thought he was outstanding. He, you know, he had a great game against the Buccaneers and was one of the reasons why the Rams beat Tampa in that game. So, you know, what you see is what you get. I, I just think it's a damning indictment uh, of Jared Goff in that particular game where you're the second best quarterback in a game where Nick Mullins is on the other sideline. So, you know, sorry, Will, but... You know. No, no, I, I mean, I'm not defending Nick Mullins. It's fine. Um, although he seems like a lovely man. Sean McVay saying that, and openly admitting to being the student to Carl Shanahan's teacher on more than one occasion previously, feels weird. Like, yeah, it McVay feels like something you should out. be saying about a head, rival head coach in the same division as you, even if you did come up working underneath him. Do you think that if you are Les Snead, you would consider drafting a quarterback in the first three rounds in 2021? I would look at, I I mean, I always think about drafting a quarterback in the first three rounds of 2021 if you've not got like a top of the next season, if you've not got a top 10 guy. Like I don't, if there's a good guy that's fallen to like late in the second or or into the third round, and you think that they could challenge and potentially be something. I, I don't have team issue with teams picking them up. This idea that quarterbacks are some fragile man-child that you have to look after and mould and stroke their egos and stuff. Like, challenge them, push them. I mean, look at this situation in Philadelphia. You know, we don't know what Jalen Hurts is going to be like, but at least there you have an option to go to, which they should be going to at some point, at some point very soon. But, you know, let's say Goff starts next season as badly. Then you've got a Jalen Hurts type figure that can come in at least potentially save your season if you're willing to, to turn it over to him. And, and as Will says, I, I don't buy this idea that quarterbacks are some sort of fragile beings that can't have that pressure put on them. And if they're any good, then hopefully they rise to that pressure and it, it pushes them on to be even better. Alabama's Mac Jones is a perfect fit for Sean McVay's offense. And if he does slip down into that sort of late second, early third round area, I would be very interested to see whether or not the Rams would make a move for him because he is an absolutely perfect fit for that system. Interesting. Interesting. The other thing that was ugly on Sunday was the Las Vegas Raiders. Just full stop. That is the, everything about what that organization did on Sunday, Simon. I mean, it was, it was horrendous. Five turnovers, four by Derek Carr, 11 penalties for 141 yards. They lost 43-6. A week after that outstanding performance at home where they, they went toe-to-toe with the Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. And what it did, it harked back to what happened in 2019, which was that they played pretty well, were 6-5 and five, um, and couldn't finish. You know, they lost 34-3 to the Jets and ended up going 7-9. and nine. Well, this year they lost 43-6 to the Falcons. Is that going to be the same, you know, for, for me as a Miami Dolphin fan, it's outstanding because it feels like there's there's them and the Ravens because of the COVID situation who are now going to fall out of the playoff race a little bit and allow teams like Miami and Cleveland to to move on up. Was it a mulligan? Can 43-6 ever be a mulligan? Or was that just a, you know, was that who the Raiders really are? It'll be very interesting to see how they perform this weekend because huh. they need to get that performance out of their system I very presume, quickly. I presume you've seen who they're playing this weekend. I think <laughs> Is it the New York Football Jets? It may be, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just me. It's just me. We know falling off the Trevor train this week then. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Full steam ahead. Uh, good, good. Right, let's hear from uh, Brian Billick, Super Bowl winning head coach with the Baltimore Ravens. Lots to talk about when it comes to that idea of franchise building, considering the situation we're finding ourselves in the NFL right now. And then we'll bring you our likes, our dislikes, our unsung heroes and our game for this upcoming week in the NFL on the Gridiron Show. I actually appreciate that because a lot of times people introduce me as former Super Bowl winning head coach. And I have to say, <laughs> well, no, I'm still a Super Bowl winning head coach. They didn't take it away from me. You know, it's not... <laughs> I'm dated or something, so so I appreciate that. I've heard somebody called a former legend on the radio before, and I was like, "What do you have to do to stop being a legend at a team?" Like, I got to tell you, I, <laughs> I, I coach my uh, grandson's third grade football team, which is a whole new experience. And one young kid come up to me and he goes, "Now you're you're you won a Super Bowl, right?" I go, "Yes, sir, I did." 
He says, and you were the head coach. I said, yeah, I was. He goes, that's really, that's really great. Cause, cause most of those guys are dead. <laughs> I said, okay, well, there's a, still a few of us kicking around here. Yeah, so quite. I probably don't know what his perspective was, but yeah. Uh, good, good. Um, I, considering we're talking about how it was a like nice, successful, long career, I actually, I want to talk about the tail end today, if that's okay, because we've got a situation in Detroit right now where yeah. the head coach, the GM, both moving on, and and we were talking about it on the show today, but the possibility that they might just need to blow that whole thing up and start again kind of not dissimilar to what you guys were going through in 2006 2007 and you know, some people would say it was harsh that you go on the back of that season when what did Bill Belichick say this year that they'd sold the farm to to get to where they got to what's that process like when you've just got to it go is. in and go and, and you have to make those decisions we really did that transition after our Super Bowl we made the conscious decision that we were going to try to hold that group together and make another run had a great defense running game and the like so we extended ourselves within the cap. And every time we did it, Ozzie Newsom, our general manager, would come in and go, now, you know what this means for 2002, right? We're going to have to clear the decks. We're going to even up the book, so to speak. And I go, yeah, got it, got it. Well, so we, we go on, we go to the divisional, but we lose in the divisional round and, and it was all well and good. Well, the next year, we had to clear the decks. And we were at the time, I think, the youngest team in the history of the NFL. We had like 20 rookies. And sometimes you have to do that. And then we kind of parlayed our th way through it and, and rebounded fairly quickly. 2007 was a little bit different, it, you know, and it shows you how that, you know, tenable the coaching situation is like Bum Phillips used to say there, them, there's two types of coaches, thems that have been fired and thems that are going to get fired. <laughs> the only difference now is it's also the GMs. It used to be just the coaches, but the GMs who really have most of the power on most teams, they're being held more accountable. And so you're seeing, I think we're going to have a record number of GM turnovers this year. So it's not just the coach. It's a lot more of the GM. We went in, in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, 13 and three. Yeah. You went to the uh, divisional round against the Titans, right? Correct. And, uh, oh, that, and I'm talking about, and, and excuse me, in 2006, not, not our first Super Bowl, but in the, just before I yeah. got fired, the year before I got fired, you know, we had a great year. We went 13 and three. Steve McNair was our quarterback and, and, and uh, we lost to the eventual Super Bowl winner, Peyton Manning in Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, Indianapolis, yeah. The next year I lose Steve McNair. I lose Jonathan Ogden. I lose Ray Lewis. I lose a plethora of people. We go five and 11 and they fire me. That's after giving me a brand new four-year contract the January before. I always tell people, I go, well, okay, they, you know, like you're looking at uh, uh, Coach Zimmer in Minnesota. They're going, well, he just got a new contract. He's okay. And I always say, no, that just means he's going to get paid. Doesn't mean they're not going to, you know, because <laughs> they'll fire you and pay you off in a New York second. Because uh, coaches' contracts, unlike players, are all guaranteed. So when a coach like gets let go, whatever years he has left, he gets that all. So what we're seeing now, which is a little bit different, is as you alluded to, it's coaches and GMs, or sometimes just GMs. So we are in a little bit of different phase. And in Detroit, it's tough because, and it's the, the Ford family and their commitment to it, but they just can't seem to get it right to find the right combination of GM and head coach to be together and create that unified vision. And that's one that's in particular that uh, is, it's been a struggle. How seriously do you think an organization like them or, or the Falcons being the other think prime example this year, teams who have very clearly a starting quarterback in the NFL that have to look at it and say, are we going to win a Super Bowl in that quarterback's lifespan if we keep them and don't rebuild? How close do you think those teams could be to moving on from something? Yeah, like well, you always, when you look at the jobs that are available, and we'll start that on Black Monday, you know, once the season's over, and it's always a tough time, particularly for me to talk about it because I've lived it. And you also realize you're just not talking about head coaches. You're talking about staffs and a lot of families being uprooted. But it's that's life in the NFL. And you look at the jobs, I'm always asked, okay, which of these are the best jobs? Well, he begins with the quarterback. Atlanta, because of Matt Ryan, in my opinion, who's an excellent Matthew Stafford, proven quarterback, those are very good jobs compared to a job that, okay, you got to go find a quarterback. It's good news, bad news. Good news is I've got a good quarterback. The bad news is if I don't win, then you're on a short leash because you don't have that excuse. If you don't have a, a good quarterback, you go, okay, well, these people understand I don't have a quarterback. Yeah, but you, we're still going to hold you accountable for the losses. At the very least, and sometimes that prompts the move that says, okay, if we got to go get a new quarterback, let's go get a new coach too. 
it's like uh, Johnny Lynn down in uh, the, with the Chargers. Mm-hmm. His tough dilemma is they now have a great young quarterback, but Johnny Lynn's on his like his third year and he hasn't won. So it's like, well, do we really want to go? For, we got the quarterback. Or are we just going to rely on that and the coach is going to get better, or do we want to kind of clear that deck and and start anew with this young quarterback? Because that's usually the sequence that's most successful. So there's a lot of pressures, a lot of scenarios by which coaches are are let go. How would you rate in that mindset then something like the Texans job where the quarterback is is there? That is, you have a top five guy, but you've got no picks this year, confusion about what the organizational structure is going to be. The one shining light, but everything else around it is is going to be in Oh, he, that's another one that they'll, they'll be lining up for that job. Because if I get to start with Deshaun Watson, I can fix all that other stuff. You know, as we talk about in my book, The Q Factor, the most difficult thing is identifying and getting that franchise quarterback. The rest of it you can get right pretty quickly. And and there's some that do and some that don't. And you know, but but if you can get the quarterback situation right and you have that right starting out, then you you've got a pretty good leg up. Now there's a lot of pressure because the assumption was okay, you got the quarterback, so you better be pretty good quick. So it carries a lot of expectations. That's a lot better place to start than not having one. And I guess then with the the other two that are looking definite i mean jacksonville and new york still have their their coaches in place at the moment but i think most people expect adam Gase to leave this year and the conversation with doug marone is here till the end of the season then they'll revisit it but you're talking about two teams who are going to have a lot of picks and the chance to get a quarterback at the very top of the draft and there's some guys that people right. really like coming out this which year. is a good thing other than as we talk about in the q factor you take a first round quarterback it's a 50 50 proposition so that's the difference between great. I have great potential to go get a quarterback, but history tells me I got a 50-50 chance of that working out versus me going someplace where I know I have the quarterback. I'm starting with Matt Ryan. I'm starting with Matthew Stafford. I'm starting with Deshaun Watson. Most, if you got a choice, all things being equal, which they never are, of course, but all things being equal, one of those established quarterbacks or the potential to get one, most coaches, I'll take the established guy. Because they know, no matter how strong their confidence is and their ability to evaluate that, that that taking a young quarterback is a niffy proposition. That that was what I was thinking as well. You say about the confidence. I think there's almost like an, an ego thing with it of that. I can fix this. I can solve that. I'm the guy who can do it with a franchise quarterback. And I don't know, self-assessment. I, I always think this about, for example, Adam Gase going straight into the next job rather than taking a year, learning going back in, it always felt a bit rushed to me. And, and sometimes self-assessment, I guess, can be the hardest. Yeah, but it, when an opportunity presents, these jobs are hard to come by. Uh, my boy said they're like a bottle, nice bottle of wine. If they were any worse, you wouldn't take it. If it were any better, it wouldn't be available to you, okay? No one would <laughs> give it to you. Um, so that's kind of a fine line, but they're hard to come by. And I can certainly understand an Adam Gase going, boy, if I, if I bypass this, I may not get another chance. And he took a risk and he had to base that on. He obviously had to feel like Sam Darnold was a good prospect. That's why you evaluate these quarterbacks, even though you may not be in the market for one, because you never know when you have to make that decision later on, whether in free agency or maybe I'm going someplace. So I know Joe Douglas, who's the new general manager for the, for the uh, Jets, was with me in Baltimore as a young scout. Excellent scout. Excellent general manager, I think. He, I know for a fact, he thought a lot of Sam Darnold. And one of the reasons he coveted the job was, okay, I think, I think they're okay there. Well, and has come to find out, no, I, I don't think Sam Darnold's a guy. So I'll be very surprised if they don't make those moves. And particularly with the first overall pick, they will be in the Trevor Lawrence Derby and now have got to go find the right coach to work with that. And I think that's the other point of interest, isn't it, for this offseason, as much as it's going to be the head coaches, the GMs, the new quarterbacks coming in, it's what that does mean for Sam Darnold. It's what it means for guys like... I don't know, Carson Wentz, where he's going to end up this year and and whether I, we could see a, a whole big old merry-go-round of guys this season trying yeah. to find their feet somewhere else. Yeah, and, and that's and that's not untypical. Um, you know, as we say in the Q factor, there's always three things that 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 you evaluate in a quarterback: physical skills, mental and emotional stability, and then the system he goes into. They all had the physical skills. Uh, even the worst first round bust, Jamarcus Russell, Vince Young, Ryan Leaf, the list goes on and on. They all had the physical skills. In varying degrees, they either didn't have the mental and emotional you know, ability to, to perform at this high level, 
and or they're with a, a system with multiple coaches or they weren't being used right. And, you know, that that confluence of the two that, uh, you know, Sam Darnold is, is a perfect example. Is it his abilities or is it the way he's been handled and the flux, you know, coming in with it? You look at Ryan Tannehill, it looked like a classic bust, you know, but then gets a new scenario in Tennessee and flourishes. Now, that's rare. Some would look at Sam Darnold and say, okay, maybe that'll happen for Sam Darnold. Go someplace else, right? Circumstance. Maybe. I'm, I'm one that I'm not so sure because what we're seeing is what we had questions about Sam Darnold going in was he didn't seem to show up in the big moments at SC. Had all the physical skills, had people around him, did them, checked off all the boxes, personality and arm strength and all that. But he didn't show up in the big, I know a lot of people felt like he didn't show up in the big moments and, and under the pressures, which every moment's a big moment in the NFL, he hasn't been able to show up. So now maybe he goes someplace else and like Orion Tannehill flourishes. Who knows? There are some people and someone will bring him on as a, a you know, minimal cost. You know, if I, if, if I get him as free agent and he's a backup and, you know, like a Mariota or Jameis Winston has gone someplace, you get him at the right price, then great. Absolutely give him the chance. Will they flourish? Yeah, who knows? But at least you're doing it with the right price. It's an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you great. so much. We'll do it. Sounds great. We'll chat again soon. All right, well. Brian Billick, join us as always here on the Gridiron Show. Will Gavin, Liam Blackburn, Simon Clancy. Anyone want to take a like first from this past week? Joey Bosa, three sacks, eight tackles, five quarterback hits, six tackles for a loss, one fumble recovery. He was prior to this week uh, PFF's best had PFF's best pass rushing grade among all pass rushers, and yeah, just having an astonishing season, which is kind of flying a little bit under the radar because. The charges aren't very good. Obviously, Justin Herbert's rightly getting a lot of attention. And well, there was a lot of talk last year about how Nick was the better voter. And with, with Nick out this year, Joey just appears to be playing on another level. And yeah, fantastic, fantastic player. The return of the 49ers is something I liked. You know, Debo Samuel, we talked about 11 for 133. Raheem Mostert played well. Richard Sherman back, had a pick and seven tackles. They are coming. You know, they're one game out of the, the wildcard race. They've got the Bills, the Washington football team, Dallas, Arizona and Seattle to finish. You know, it's not a, it's not an easy schedule, but if they can win four out of those five games, they are right back in the in in the mix. And, and that is not a team you want to meet in the playoffs. I'm going to do a little like unsung hero co tie up thing for uh, Titans cornerback Breon Borders, who had one of the worst dropped interceptions I have ever seen in my life. Where basically. Phil Rivers threw it onto his numbers and he just, it was a pick six all day long. It was only about 15 yards from the goal line and he just took his eye off the ball a second too early, looked downfield, knowing what was ahead of him. As a guy who's bounced around practice squads for the last three or four years, as someone who hasn't caught on with the team and is finally getting a chance at some snaps, it was a heartbreaking moment to then come back in the second half, get the game ceiling essentially interception later on, and had a really good second half in general in past defence. It was just a lovely little bounce back, a lovely little story of a guy that's had to fight hard for his place in the NFL, and, and I absolutely absolutely loved it when I saw it. So uh, I'm kind of balling in a couple into two there. Uh, what about a couple of dislikes that you guys had from, uh, from this week that we haven't talked about yet? Simon? Zane Gonzalez, the Arizona kicker. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, against the Dolphins. He was short on a 48-yarder. That cl- I mean, how can you be short if you're an NFL kicker that clanged off the crossbar um, and they ended up losing that game? And then he missed the 45-yarder at the end of the game uh, with the Patriots and, and allowed Nick Folk to, or allowed the Patriots to drive down and Nick Folk to keep the 50-yarder to, to win the game. So uh, if I'm um, if I'm Cliff Kingsbury, I am auditioning kickers this week and uh, I'm sure he has been, although it's Cliff Kingsbury. Well, so <laughs> maybe he let's make no assumptions if that's okay. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Uh, Liam? We should just mention the, the Cardinals, actually, because obviously um, the Patriots did a great job against Kyler Murray and he made a point afterwards that, on the option read stuff that they were basically keyed in on him. They were quite happy for him to hand the ball off to the running back. And Murray had only five carries. I think it was about 30 or 30 odd yards. And they're basically saying that they weren't letting him get outside. And I think might perhaps be a scheme that other people adopt. There's been three games this year where Murray's had five rushes or fewer and Arizona have lost all three against the Seahawks, the Lions and the Patriots. So that is something to monitor going forward. Um, my dislike was <laughs> Sam Darnold's performance. Kind of running out of excuses here. Uh, all his receivers are back. Bad play calling, obviously, but he's now not thrown a touchdown in four straight games. The Jets have scored three points in two games combined against Miami this season. And there are obviously a lot, a lot of issues with that team. But 
Sam Darnold's kind of, he might get a chance at, at being a starter again next year, but the, the kind of notion that the Jets can hopefully kind of ride him out for the rest of the season and then they're set at that position and can look elsewhere is, is just disappearing rapidly. The likelihood is once people are listening to this, week 12 will be concluded. But as of right now, we haven't had the Pittsburgh Steelers-Baltimore Ravens game. We understand they got on the plane, so it's definitely going to be happening at the time we're speaking. We'll know the result in about 12 hours' time. But uh, let's start to look forward to week 13. It's, I mean, it's difficult this late in the season to not pick kind of obvious games out. But uh, Liam, I'll come to you first. What particularly stands out to you from, uh, from week 13? Something you're excited to see 49ers bills actually i think that might be we sort of talked about 49ers coming back and in, in good recent performances josh allen's always fun to watch i'm kind of curious to see how that one goes because two teams that could well be in the playoffs and yeah i'm quite intrigued to see if the niners can kind of keep this recent revival up and bills are going to make a statement performance to kind of get in control of this afc east Part of a little Monday night doubleheader as well with uh, Steelers Washington being moved to the Monday. So, uh, and with the Steelers having to come off that Thursday, the Wednesday game, we talked about Washington surging. I think that's a really nice, intriguing Monday night double bill. I'm going to plump for Cardinals Rams before Simon gets a chance to because uh, fine good uh obviously it's an nfc west class which gets me excited for it but also you talked about the playoff picture i think it's really fascinating in the nfc and in the nfc west what they're going to do the rams struggling against divisional opponents the cardinals coming off one of their worst games of the season so i think it's really important game for both teams and that often leads to plenty of intrigue simon um, I just quickly wanted to mention an unsung hero as well, which is Jeremy Chin. Oh, of sorry, yeah, um, unsung hero. My bad. Thirteen tackles, two touchdowns on back-to-back plays. First time in NFL history that's been done. You know, a kid from Southern Illinois who was taken in the second round. There's a lot of talk about him um, going in the first round. He has been absolutely outstanding this year. Still a little bit raw, but for me, he should be defensive rookie of the year. And you look at his numbers, he has been everywhere. Uh, I think he's been outstanding. In terms of games of the week, I am very interested to see what happens between the Tennessee Titans and the Cleveland Browns. This is a statement game now for the Cleveland Browns. You look at their, their wins this season. Apart from the Colts, they have beaten the Bengals twice, the Washington football team, Dallas, Philadelphia, Jacksonville. In the three games that they've lost, they lost 38-6 to the Ravens, they lost 38-7 to Pittsburgh, and they lost 16-6 to the Las Vegas Raiders in a, in a result that really did was much worse than it looked on paper. So they scored 19 points against three teams, you know, who three good teams, and they've only beaten one decent team, which is Indianapolis. I think this is a huge statement game to see exactly who these Cleveland Browns are. That Browns-Titans game might be over in about an hour, given that um, <laughs> going to try and run the ball. Those. Yeah. There might be 400 rushing yards in that game. Uh, and that might be being conservative. Boys, good fun. As always, don't forget to check out the social media channels at UK Gridiron on Instagram, at Gridiron on Twitter. Uh, you can find us there with a YouTube channel as well. If you're watching this there, then check out some of the other content we're doing there. And uh, that thing that people always do where they ask you to like, rate and subscribe, that stuff. If you could leave a review, it genuinely does help people find the show. And uh, yeah, we are delivering it to you for free. The only thing we ask back it's just a little five stars if you like it. A little comment to say how much you like it. Uh, it's not about inflating our egos because you don't need to do that any more than they're already inflated. It's more about uh, making sure that more people do hear us because that will inflate our egos further. Thank you so much for listening slash watching. This has been The Gridiron Show. <laughs>